Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz, and it is Senior Bowl week leading up to Saturday's game in Mobile, Alabama. And it's kind of, it feels like the week that kind of kicks off the offseason in terms of draft. It, it helps lead us up toward the combine coming up in a few weeks. And this is a game where we've seen in the past where the Seahawks have gone and, and got some of the top performers and guys who have just stood out at the Senior Bowl. So it's something that we like to look at, break down, and here to do it is Mr. Rob Staten of SeahawksDraftBlog.com. Rob, it's I know it's been a little bit of a frustrating week trying to cover the Senior Bowl, uh, especially when you're across the pond and not at the game because TV coverage isn't great, but uh, you're doing an excellent job. Thank you, Brian. I've tried to find as much as I can. Um, there's been some very helpful people on Twitter that have provided a lot of videos. A couple of guys on YouTube have posted videos as well so that we can try and get a feel for what's actually happened in Mobile this week. The coverage has not been great. Uh, but I think we've we've kind of got there. We, we, we have a little bit of an understanding on on who has performed well. And I think really the, the sort of sum it up in a, in a nutshell, this week in Mobile has kind of emphasized the state of the 2020 draft, which is that there is some strength in depth at wide receiver. There is some strength and uh, depth as well on the offensive line, but perhaps defensive line is a weakness in this, this class overall. And uh, and that is going to be an issue for teams, which is going to need to be sold in free agency instead, where there are a lot of pass rushers and defensive linemen who are set to hit the market. Well, and some of those good guys to follow in terms of senior bowl coverage, Former field goals managing editor Danny Kelly's down there. I know you follow Tony Pauline uh, pretty extensively. And one of the news items to come out from Tony Pauline from the Senior Bowl is the Seahawks' potential interest in tight end Austin Hooper from the Falcons, who is going to be a free agent this offseason. Yeah, and Tony is fantastic sources and has, has been very, very accurate with a lot of Seahawks stuff over the years. So um, he is a trusted source. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, the Seahawks are going to have to add a tight end at some point in this offseason. They have Will Disley, who I think everybody would agree is a fantastic player and has shown a great deal in his two seasons in the league so far. But unfortunately, he's also had two very serious injuries. And you don't want to sort of put a question mark about him in terms of his health moving forward. Everybody hopes that he comes back in year three and stays healthy. But when a player has two serious injuries in back-to-back seasons... You, you can't really rely on him. They can't go into 2020 believing that he's going to play 16 games. So they need to do something. And when you look at the draft, there are some intriguing tight ends in this draft class. Um, Harrison Bryant's had a good week at the Senior Bowl. You've got Hunter Bryant from Washington. Cole Komet, for example, at Notre Dame has, um, has declared and is sort of touted as a first or second round pick. Adam Troutman had a very good week in Mobile, a small school tight end. But you know, not... All of these players have the measurements that the Seahawks are looking for, and we have to wait and see how they tested the combine as well, because the Seahawks put a lot of, they invest a lot in the short shuttle and the three come with tight ends. Now, Austin Hooper has got good blocking skills. He's a very good receiver. He is running the four threes on a short shuttle, which is an exceptionally quick time for a guy who weighs 250 pounds and is six foot four. He has 34 inch arms. He's produced it at a high level for the last three years and was ranked amongst the top tight ends in the NFL in 2019 before an injury at about the halfway point of the season kind of stalled some of his momentum, but he still ended up with sort of 61 yards a game and has been very, very productive there. I I think that he's going to cost a lot of money. You know, you're talking $10 million for a tight end, but the Seahawks are a team that have invested big on this position in the past with Zach Miller in 2011, trading for Jimmy Graham in, in 2015. So I think that there's a reasonably good chance that they will, will try and get him. 
I think the one team that are really going to push them, if it ends up being, you know, if there's a collection of teams that may be interested in them, I think the one to watch is the Washington Redskins. You know, they've got a lot of cap room. I think they're clearly going to add a tight end at some point this year. Ron Rivera's had a lot of success in Carolina with Greg Olson. So I'd expect that they're going to go big for a tight end as well. There will be a good market for Austin Hooper, but the Seahawks will surely be one of the teams uh, taking a look there. Yeah, and with the skins, you know, Jordan Reed is a guy who they've tried to count on year after year, and it, and he always ends up on the injured list, and and so kind of a similar problem with Will Disley. You know, you, after a couple of years, you the offense looks so good when he's in there and he's healthy, but when he's not, it, it's such a difference. And you want a guy that you can count on year after year, and and with Disley, you kind of you wonder if some of those injuries are fluky, but after a couple of years, you start to it, the concern starts to grow on you that maybe this could be a consistent thing. And so, you know, whether it's Hooper or whether it's through the draft, you know, you mentioned uh, Troutman's name from uh, from Dayton. And that's a guy who Tony Pauline has said uh, some of the scouts were saying that he looked better at catching the football than some of the receivers, but he has more of that tight end size frame. Not a guy, obviously, like uh, we've seen with uh, with the Seahawks backup, Jacob Hollister, you know, the, the more of the, the Zach Miller type size that you would expect from a tight end. Yeah. And I think that it was really noticeable to the Seahawks offense when Will Disley was, was injured. If you actually just look at his stat line, you know, ignore the first game against Cincinnati, which was a bit of a weird game anyway. Um, but he had 50 yards against the Steelers and a couple of touchdowns, 62 yards against New Orleans and a touchdown, you know, eight targets, seven receptions, 57 yards and a score against Arizona four catches for 81 yards against the Rams. You know, we're talking huge, big numbers here for a tight end. And then he got injured in the Cleveland game very early in that one. And you take away that production and all of a sudden, instead of having, you know, your, your dynamic outside threat with DK Metcalf, who can get downfield, he's got a huge frame. You've got Tyler Lockett who can play in the slot or outside as well. You've got a collection of younger receivers who can play various different roles. And you've got a big tight end who can be a mismatch at the second level, run through the seam, can be a third down receiver for you. Uh, you know, I think they were really relying on Will Disley to actually take some of the slack from Doug Baldwin not being there and and to produce some of those those conversions on third downs, big plays. And when they lost him, it, it was a big deal. And that's one of the reasons why I think they went and got Josh Gordon, because they felt like they needed somebody who in those key downs could come up big for them. And, uh, you know, they need a tight end. They need somebody who's going to be out there. I, I don't have any issue with, I think most Seahawks fans, you know, when this news came out, I think most of them have been very positive about the prospects of signing Austin Hooper, which I'm actually quite pleased about because I thought that, you know, the Seahawks have got a lot of cap room this offseason. You know, it's, it's not like if they sign Austin Hooper for $10 million, it doesn't mean they can't fix the defensive line, for example. You know, there's, right. there's plenty of money to go around. They can sign a tight end and, and then focus on the pass rush. And, you know, I think a plan, I think it's a very obvious plan, would be heading into this offseason is, can you get a tight end like Austin Hooper? Can you get a couple of pass rushers and, and re-sign Jadavian Clowney. And if you can do those things before you go into the draft, then it's a very good draft for offensive linemen. It's a very good draft for receivers. You can kind of focus on those two positions. See, you know, the, uh, Pete Carroll's talked about consistency on the offensive line. If there's a chance to bring back a Fant or an Afedi or an Yupati, they may well do that. But you, at least you've got the draft to fall back on as well to fill some holes. So I think that would make a, a logical blueprint for a Seahawks 2020 offseason. And, you know, I, I think there's definitely room for someone like Austin Hooper to come in there and, and be a big factor alongside Will Disley, hopefully. Well, and if you're talking about spending $10 million a year, $10 million on Austin Hooper to potentially upgrade the offense, give Russell Wilson another weapon to throw to and have backup insurance if Will Disley ends up getting hurt again. I'd like to see them spend $10 million on Austin Hooper versus spending the $10 million on Jermaine Effetti, which 
you know, the, the consistency is okay, but I don't feel like the upgrade that you're getting by going out and getting maybe a smaller uh, dollar amount right tackle or drafting a potential right tackle. I don't think the upgrade uh, between those two positions is really that it's not really there. And the Seahawks can function, you know, with somebody like Austin Hooper and Will Disley in the team because they, they can act as a blocker. So I think a, a viable possibility here, Brandon, is that Jermaine Defetti moves on and signs somewhere else, probably for a, a deal which is slightly richer than the Seahawks would be willing to pay for him. And they may need to re-sign George Fant at a much cheaper cost to start at right tackle. And if George Fant is starting at right tackle, you've no longer got him as your your, your tight end hybrid offensive lineman. So you're going to need some guys who can block off the edge. And that's the great thing about Disley is that he had the size and was a great, a great, great blocker as a tight end. But with Austin Hooper, you've got a guy who's perhaps not as good a blocker as Will Disley is, but is certainly not a liability in any sense that he can come in and get the job done. He's got long arms, he's got decent size. He is willing to get involved in the blocking game as well. So you've kind of eliminated the need to retain Fant as that tight end. If Fant ends up being the right tackle, then you've got two guys who can play that role. Maybe you bring back Jacob Hollister as a, you know, a slightly different option there, you know, more of a pass-catching tight end rather than a blocker. And you've got a good combination of, of three tight ends there. But again, just a reminder, the Seahawks have, have gone big on this position before. Jimmy Graham, Zach Miller, um, they really like Will Disley. It would not be a surprise if they put a high priority on Austin Hooper and add another weapon. Russell Wilson cannot have too many weapons. You know, he will never have too many weapons. Give the guy everything he needs to take this team as far as they can. And, and getting a tight end is a it's not the top priority, but it's it's a high priority this offseason. Well, and the thing was, too, when the Seahawks drafted Will Disley, it's not like we thought we were getting this great pass catcher. We thought we were getting a blocking tight end. And as I'm looking at fieldgoals.com, Alistair Corp, he's gone through a a rundown of some of the top performers at the Senior Bowl this week. And one of the guys that he points to, a guy who is not quite uh, known for his pass catching ability, but is a blocking tight end, and that's Jared Pinckney of Vanderbilt. Yeah, I, the thing about Pingney is that he's really struggled this year. I mean, he he was coming into the uh, into the 2019 season, and the expectation was that he could work his way into the first round. Now, Vanderbilt had a terrible season. You know, there was a running back, a quarterback, a tight end there who you know people were talking about really, you know, really good chance to go quite high in the draft and and, and end up having an NFL future. And the team just completely collapsed. And when you watched Pinkney, there was just nothing there. You know, there was no no speed, no quickness, no urgency. And I have to say, you know, from what little I've seen in Mobile, I, I, I know that he was named, I think, tight end of the week by uh, the players who were competing with him, for whichever roster he was on. But I, I just didn't see it personally. You know, I think he's a player that is probably going to go a lot later than people thought a year ago. And the one good thing with that is he's... You know, he was still a first, second round type talent before the season began. That's not completely gone away because he's had a bad year and you know, some would argue a poor senior bowl. There's still some potential there. If you could get him on day three, for example, he could be a nice developmental project for uh, for somebody. It's just that when when guys, you know, when it really matters to them and it's it's not worked out and they've underwhelmed, it's hard to be too optimistic about them, them moving forward. So I, I'm not, personally sure that he's somebody that you know it's hard to project who the Seahawks are going to go for at tight end because as I mentioned the short shuttle and three count is so important for them uh we need to see who runs in the four threes four fours or even faster in the short shuttle and you know can they get a seven 
7003 cone, for example, um, to uh, in order to entice the Seahawks. We need to see those tests. But, uh, you know, Pinkney's somebody who's he's lost a lot of momentum. Well, and like you said, it will kind of depend on some of those combine numbers. So uh, once we get those in after the combine, that'll help narrow our focus, I think, when it comes to the tight end. So let's switch over to the edge rushers, because this is a spot where the Seahawks, we know they need to upgrade in the offseason. Only 28 sacks on the season for the Seahawks. Jadevian Clowney, you know, he's not he's not the sack guy in the sense, but he does get a lot of pressure on the quarterback. He's also great in the run game. But you need to if you are going to re-sign him for the the type of costs that you know a lot of people are suggesting upwards of twenty million dollars. You're going to need to pair him with you know a, a true edge type rusher, and they're probably going to have to find one of those guys in the first round if they're going to do that. And I wonder about uh, guys like Jason Strobridge, uh, the edge defender out of North Carolina, and uh, Darrell Taylor uh, out of Tennessee. Yeah, I, I mean Taylor didn't work out um, this week. He's 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 had injury issues mm. throughout, um, and and he got a red flag before the workouts even began. So, I mean that's something that teams are going to have to decide what's the risk reward factor there with him. You know, he's going to end up being a late pick because of injuries. He's not the only one, by the way. You know, there's there's other guys who who didn't work out because of injury this week, and there are even some like Terrell Lewis who did from Alabama, who's another edge defender. Right. Um, they've had injury issues that you know there it is a class with kind of. I mean, Jabari Zaniga looked terrible this week. You know, he's a guy that you would have thought would have been a top 45 pick going into the year and he, he did not have a good uh, senior bowl practice week and you just wonder whether the injury still he had an ankle injury all season is, is still impacting him uh, a little bit there but you're right you know the Seahawks need something you know they they had Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill for such a long time if they can bring back Jadavian Clowney they have kind of like Michael Bennett plus um, in, in Clowney they need their Averill they need a Cliff Averill type to play across from him. And, um, you know, I have to say, looking at this class, I, I didn't really see anybody who kind of stood out in that regard. Strobridge played like his hair was on fire. You know, it was intense. If, if you watched him after every single snap, he would sprint back to the, uh, to the starting position afterwards. Just to show how, I, got, I, I don't know, like, urge, there was like a real sense of urgency about him. Like, I'm, gonna, I'm taking this seriously. This is a job interview. I'm putting my best foot forward. His effort was 100% on every single snap except for the final day where he struggled a little bit. And I don't know whether that was the offensive lineman had worked him out somewhat, whether it was just they improved and kind of found their feet a little bit. I mean, Josh Jones bossed Jason Strobridge on the last day. Just He dumped him on his arse at one point, <laughs> um, just locked on. And, and this is there is a problem with Strobridge, and people are going to come away from Mobile thinking, wow, you know, he's he's really improved his stock. He looked fantastic and he did all this. But I thought that the same issues on film showed up in at the senior bowl, which is that he does not use his hands. He he kind of like leans into blockers and tries to win with speed and quickness, and he does not use his hands at all. Now, in at the senior bowl, that was fine. You know, he was he was winning with quickness, he was coming up against offensive linemen that are probably not going to start in the NFL, and he was just too quick for them. He would like sort of lean into them. And he didn't really need to engage, disengage. Didn't really need to start off with a you know a great jolt to the pads and then and then swim and, and get through. He was just winning with speed. But then, like I mentioned at the final, that Josh Jones at the end of the week just said, "No, I'm not having that anymore," and just stuck his his big old paws into his chest, shut him down, locked him down. And this is the problem Strobridge is going to have. No doubt, he's quick. No doubt, he's got some speed. He's more of an inside-out type rusher than maybe a pure edge. Um, he's got some physical potential there. But he has short arms, you know, under 33-inch 
arms and he doesn't use his hands at all. And you have to be able to use your hands in the NFL. Well, and another thing too, at the edge position, it's one of those again, where you're waiting to see the 10 yard splits, especially at the combine is, is something that the Seahawks look for. And Cliff Averill notorious for having a, a really fast uh, 10 yard split in his 40 time. So uh, just another thing to watch looking ahead to the combine. Yeah. I mean, Cliff Averill ran a one five Oh, now, sort of anything in the one fives is elite. And most, most of the top guys, yeah, most of the top guys kind of run a one five seven or something like that, one five six. Uh, for able to run a one five zero is is practically unheard of. You know, that's like a cornerback ten yard split. So it's it's not. I think Bruce Irvin ran a, I think a one five five or something like that. So you really want a guys who have got that kind of burst, and it'll be interesting to see if any of these guys in the draft have that. I just have a feeling that. You know, with all this cap space that the Seahawks have got, and the, the, there are means to create even more space. You know, Ed Dixon's not going to be with the team next year, for example. He'll save another three million. They've got a big decision to make on Justin Britt. That's you know nine million potentially saved there. You know, they can create enough cap room to sign Clown and maybe sign Austin Hooper and go and get another pass rusher. And I just wonder as they kind of look through this long list of guys who are available there. And here's the other thing to remember: you know, pick number twenty-seven. I don't think the options are that great at 27 um, for what the Seahawks need. And I just wonder if the right guy at the right price isn't there at free agency. I just wonder if they take that number 27 pick, give it to another team in the same way the Chiefs did a year ago with Frank Clark, and they go and get a pass rusher who's contracted already somewhere else. All right, Rob. Well, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. I want to talk more about receivers. I want to talk about the offensive line. Of course, we touched a little bit on Jermaine Effetti, but, uh, you know, if they're going to be looking for a replacement there, where do they go in the draft? And maybe they would look at the interior, too. And we'll talk about that coming up next. Talking to Rob Staten of SeahawksDraftBlog.com, Senior Bowl on Saturday and workouts throughout the week. So we've been watching uh, some of the tweets that have come through, showing some of the film from the reporters that are there on site and giving us an idea of some of the one-on-one drills. That's the nice thing about the Senior Bowl is you get to see some of these players one-on-one. And that's not just one-on-one against Guys who are you know on their same college team or or one on one like you see in a game with a, a guy who's probably not going to be a, an NFL draft prospect. These are the top seniors in, the, in college that are likely going to be going into the NFL, and that that gives you an opportunity to see these guys take on you know similar level talent at their position. Yeah, and, and the thing is, Brandon, it's the one thing that um, you know the combine doesn't provide. It is those kind of one on one battles, and you can sort of see where players really turn up and show and, and and have a really good week. And you can sort of see the ones who are going to elevate themselves up towards the first round. I have to say, I don't think this year in Mobile, we've seen players maybe do what... And look, I know that people are going to be very skeptical about this because of the way that LJ Collier performed for the Seahawks as a rookie. But last year at the Senior Bowl, he stuck out so much. I mean, he was just superb. Everything was amazing about his performance at the Senior Bowl. And you could look at him and go, he looks like a first round or like a top 45 type player because he is dominating at the senior bowl. And there were a few others. I mean, Caleb McGarry, the, the Washington right tackle had an amazing senior bowl. And off the back of that, even though he had the heart condition, you could say there's a decent chance he's going to go in the first round. And he did to the Atlanta Falcons because of the way he performed in mobile. So you, you get a real good look at how these prospects compare and it's the one thing you don't get at the combine. You get great testing numbers. You get a, a whole bunch of numbers to look through and compare them to previous years. 
you don't get the one-on-ones though. So that's what, what makes the senior bowl unique and, and a really cool event. And it's kind of disappointing when you know guys are going to be there. You brought up Daryl Taylor, the edge defender out of Tennessee, who we haven't gotten to see his workouts. Uh, Javon Kinlaw out of South Carolina, defensive lineman. Uh, he was injured. We won't see him in the game, or he, he stepped out due to injury. Uh, you got Brandon Ayuk, who when we talked to uh, Jim Nagy, you know, he was a guy who, who we were all kind of looking forward to seeing at the Senior Bowl. And uh, Raekwon Davis of Alabama, not there. So out of those four guys, who's kind of the one disappointing guy that you look at and go, oh, man, I really would have liked to see him one on one at the Senior Bowl. I think uh, you just because, you know, he's such a talented player and I think he would have really dominated this week. I think that would have been really good to see. Raekwon Davis, he would have been nice. He's not had a very good last couple of years at Alabama and it would have been nice to see if he could show some pass rush. But, you know, I think I I kind of noticed about this week as well, Brandon, was that if, if more people listen to the podcast um, that you do, then they would have heard Jim Nagy saying that uh, Brandon Ayuk is being graded higher than uh, and kill Harry a year ago because Jim Nagy told us that at the start of the year. He repeated those comments this week at the Senior Bowl and it made quite a few headlines. But of course, listeners to this podcast would have known that a month ago. <laughs> That's true. And hey, maybe maybe we can uh, give some other people some guys to look at as we lead up to the draft and sticking at wide receiver. One of the guys that's kind of been highlighted. And, th- and this is an interesting name to me, mostly because Hugh Freeze, who used to be the coach at Ole Miss. So he was a, he coached DK Metcalf and, and you know, hey, he has an eye, obviously, for wide receivers because, you know, not just DK Metcalf, but uh, you know, A.J. Brown to come out of Ole Miss. And now he's at Liberty. And Antonio Gandy-Golden, the wide receiver out of Liberty, getting some uh, good pub this week. Yeah, I, you know, I, from what I saw, he he did a decent job. I mean, not as good a job as Van Jefferson at getting open. And, you know, KJ, I mean, Van Jefferson was really, really good this week. I mean, just his ability to, you know, really subtle, uh, deliberate movements, look so fluid and smooth to, to get open. And, you know, he's a coach's son and he, it really showed. Uh, we need to see how he tests, of course. And KJ Hill at Ohio State has got a, an amazing eel runner sub four short shuttle. Will be able to destroy that drill there at the combine. Um, his long speed's not great, but he's very good at short areas, so he gets open as well. And I think Antonio Gany Golden wasn't a million miles behind those guys getting open this week, but there was just one play that really stuck in my mind where he got open. There was a throw downfield, and it just went straight through his hands, mm. and it was just such an easy catch that it's hard to, you know, there's ones that are really easy. Right. It's hard to shake out of your mind. And, um, you know, he wasn't the only one. KJ Hill had some drops. You know, I thought I, I saw quite a lot of drops, to be honest, when I was watching the receivers. Van Jefferson, I think, was the only one I didn't sort of noticeably, the bigger names, have a drop. And although it is a really good receiver class, I think that it's going to be padded out significantly by the underclassmen who have declared. Uh, but there were a couple, you know, guys in here who, Denzel Mims had a fantastic week and he's a contested catch specialist. I don't think getting open with quick separation, suddenness is is what his game is about. But as a red zone threat, somebody who can chuck it down and win the red line, he had a, he really impressed. And Van Jefferson, equally um, very good, uh, you know, but a bit different getting open. Um, very crisp routes. So I think those two were the guys that really stood out for me. It is really tough, though, for wide receivers, especially because you brought up the the idea that they're kind of overshadowed by the underclassmen. Usually guys who once they're recognized as top NFL type talent, they're going to come out of 
out of college and enter the, the draft. So it is kind of wide receiver and corner, I guess you could say, is those are two of those positions that, you know, especially at the senior bowl, you're probably not getting your top talent that you get in college. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's a very frequent, isn't it? The cornerbacks and the, and the receivers, they come out very, very early. I mean, next year we're going to get to see Devonta Smith at, at Alabama. He returned for, for his senior year and he's a very, very good player. So hopefully he will get a mobile and will work out at the senior bowl. There were a lot of the Alabama guys did not work out at the senior bowl this year and they kind of pulled out Trevon Diggs, Raekwon Davis. Um, I think there was another one in there as well. So the, you know, the, a lot of the guys did not actually go to the local, uh, bowl practice and, and you know, that's a shame but yeah you're right you know a lot of the guys declare early but you know one or two get through the net I mean last year we had Debo Samuel and Terry McLaurin who both look superb you know they both look like first round picks a year ago and it's it's amazing that I mean Debo Samuel was what like the second pick or something in round two but he probably should have been in the first round and that's been validated with the way he's played and there's, it's an absolute joke that Terry McLaurin was allowed to drop to round three you know I, I think <laughs> Some of us were mocking him at the end of the first round, but, you know, he lasted to round three and what a steal for the Redskins. Well, do you think at all it's because of age? Because I guess Van Jefferson's kind of in that same camp, too. You know, he's 23 years old. Uh, He'll be 24 by the time the NFL season rolls around. And I don't know if that's a positive or a knock against uh, wide receivers, but uh, you do tend to see younger guys as well in the draft. I really don't know what the issue was with McLaurin because you actually watch him on the on the tape last year and he was superb at everything. You know, he did a great special teamer as well. Um, I think that was what teams the vibe seemed to be that teams believed he was he was mainly a special teams guy, and yet he he did such a good job of getting open. He was explosive downfield. He could win on the shorter routes. You know, Ohio State for years, ever since Urban Meyer's taken over, they've always had very high production offenses, but they've always kind of spread the ball around, used the running backs an awful lot. See, like Michael Thomas, who's probably the best receiver in the NFL, or you know, one of the top two, I would imagine, um, had something like an 800-yard season the last year at Ohio State, and ended up going in round two. But then you watched him on the tape, and you know, I wrote an article saying he's a top 25 prospect. Yeah, because when you actually watched his tape, you saw a fantastic player. The production wasn't there though, because Ohio State always has like a quarterback who puts up like 5,000 yards, but they never have receivers that put up. They spread the ball around so much. Um, and that was the same in Florida when Mayer was there as well. So um, he didn't have the production, and I, and yet probably a bit about the age. But then he went to the senior ball and was so good, at, you know. And I was convinced he was going to go very very early as a consequence of that. Did not see him dropping to round three. But then DK Metcalf probably shouldn't have dropped to the end of round two either. Well, and I remember us having this discussion last year about Terry McLaurin because I, I felt like you're pounding the table about this guy, you know, being a, a first round talented player. And there was even some talk about him potentially going in the first round. And then, you know, he was teammates with Paris Campbell and he was kind of the more flashier receiver. But yet it, it was McLaurin who had the the way better season. I know Campbell was injured last year a little bit, but, um, you know, you, when you look at those guys in terms of NFL talent on their first season, you go, oh, yeah, McLaurin's going to be the guy going forward. Yeah, and you know, there was a lot of receivers drafted in that second round um, before DK Metcalf and, and Terry McLaurin. You know, Paris Campbell was was number 59. So that was a few picks before DK Metcalf. Andy Isabella went before DK Metcalf and, and Terry <laughs> McLaurin. You know, AJ Brown had a fantastic season. There's no, I mean, that he, he went at 51 overall. You know, how did he last the 51 the way that he played? Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, you know, Unkill Harry was was the number 31 pick. You know, there was, I'm sure the Philadelphia Eagles 
um, took a receiver around that range as well. The, the Stanford guy, his name of completely yeah, forgot. Whiteside, he went ahead That's and Metcalf too. Yeah, and oh man, it just it makes me laugh because I know Cardinals fans. They're all just so upset over the fact that here they got Isabella uh, instead of a guy like Metcalf. Oh, I mean, imagine. I mean, just think of that offense, though. You know, with the way that Callum Murray played. If they had McLaurin or or Metcalf instead of Andy Isabella, and look. I'm, again, you know, a year ago, if we were talking about the Senior Bowl, I would have said I, I wasn't that impressed with Andy Isabella. Uh-huh. You know, he he, he dropped his. He did too. He was too busy getting into his routes. You know, there was too much footwork. Uh, he just he did try too hard to get open, and his hands were inconsistent. And um, you know, he ended up being the number sixty-two pick because they they just enamoured with his athleticism and maybe thought he was kind of a faster Julian Edelman. And then you've got like big DK and you've got um, Terry McLaurin as well, who were clearly the better players for me. So, uh, you know, I think teams overthink these things sometimes. And, you know, I, I suspect that we're going to talk about a player in a few moments who teams are also going to overthink in Logan Stenberg. I was just getting to Logan Stenberg because I know uh, on the offensive line and yes, the Seahawks, it might feel like at guard they're kind of set because you you can expect maybe Mikey Piety to come back. But, you know, they've had Jamarco Jones filling at guard. They're high on Phil Haynes. Over on the right side, DJ Fluker still has another year. They, they could save some cap room by cutting him. But uh, how about Logan Sternberg at guard out of Kentucky? I, if, if you told me that he was Seattle's pick at number 27, I would stand up and applaud. I mean, like he's being graded late second round, third round type of range. I, I, I'd take him whenever. You know, I, I, obviously not going to take him in like the top 15, but at the end of the first round, if somebody takes Logan Stenberg, considering, you know, some of the players that went at the end of the first round a year ago, you know, you're talking about, yeah, you know, I, I really liked LJ Collier, but, you know, him and, you know, Caleb McGarry, who played very well at the Senior Bowl, 31, you know, you've got Nkil Harry in there, uh, Titus Howard and Andre Dillard going in the 20s. When I look at Logan Stenberg, I just see a fantastic offensive lineman who plays with just a real attitude. He just absolutely hammers people at the offensive, at the, at the guard position on the offensive line. You know, for me, he he sort of compares quite favorably to like an Alex Boone type, you know, the guy who was at San Francisco and then Minnesota, just big, strong, powerful, you know, every single, I did not see him get beat once in Mobile. Like all that would happen was he would engage with his arms and would win with power and would finish his blocks. Now, when you actually watch the Kentucky games, he doesn't just engage, finish the blocks and sort of go on to the next rep like he's been doing in Mobile he will finish the blocks by dumping the guy on his backside and then hammering them and then giving them something about it afterwards. <laughs> he would get to the second level and he would punish linebackers. He was, you know, one of the things I read was that his mobility wasn't very good. Yeah, I put on the tape and I could see him pulling from the left guard position, locking on, sealing the edge on big running plays. You know, Kentucky's offensive line was graded, I think, in the top, I think it was fifth overall by PFF um, last season in the whole of college football. And he was a huge reason for that. You know, there's, there's like, when, whenever you read any criticisms about him, it's always like, it's, it's nitpicking. It's doesn't win with leverage. So yeah, he's six foot six. So he's not, he's, he's not Joey Hunt. He's not going to be able to get, he's not Puna Ford. He's not going to be able to get underneath you and win with leverage. But I, I just don't see that as an issue. You know, he, he was quite high in his stance at the senior bowl, but he locks on and you cannot get free. Heavy hands, very forceful, doesn't let go finishes, physical, tough, 320 pounds. Um, it's got plus 33 inch arms. 
for me, he just looks like the kind of guy that you stick at left guard and you don't worry about that position for eight to ten years. And I, I you know, the Seahawks have gone bigger on the offensive line. You know, he's he's similarly sized to Mikey Patti and, and DJ Fluka. You know, they like those bigger guys. And I just think he's he'd be a great fit for a team that wants to run the ball again and again and again and ram it down your throat, um, do play action and stuff like that. You know, that that he is the perfect kind of guy for that. And like I say, you know, if if he ends up going at the end of the first round. I'm happy with that. I think he's a massively underrated by the media. I cannot believe that, you know, guys like Josh Jones at Houston are getting all this publicity and, you know, some others are there getting really pumped up and nobody talks about Logan Stenberg. <laughs> I mean, he just to me, he looked like one of the best players in the senior bowl. And, uh, you know, there are two players in this draft that I would, that I've seen that I would, you know, I, I wouldn't just bang the table. I would get up on the table and, you know, take my shoes off and throw them at people. And that would be Logan Stenberg and Anthony McFarlane, the running back at Maryland, who I think is special. And uh, I think if he gets on a good team, uh, I think if you know Stenberg and put Stenberg and McFarlane on the Seahawks roster, um, I think you'll be a lot better team in 2020 and beyond. Well, and this is one of the things that I really like about our discussions, Rob, because I think for for Seahawks fans who are who are tuned into other people who are talking about the draft, they're going to look at people who are, you know, maybe more in tune with the passing game. They might not even look at running backs just because of the nature of the league right now. But over our, our years discussing these, you are tuned into the type of guys that the Seahawks look for. And I feel like, you know, when I hear you talk about Sternberg, you know, just the, the type of a, a mauling type guard. That's the type of guy that they're looking for. They want a guy who can run block and, and maybe he isn't as great on, on the passing side of the, of the football, but, uh, they, you, you understand what the Seahawks are looking for and another guy who, who plays guard and, and kind of a big guy. And I think we actually talked about him when we talked about the, the Clemson LSU game is John Simpson. Yeah, you know, John Simpson is, uh, you know, I, I think with Simpson, he had a bit of a rough week, actually. You know, the first two days, um, in Mobile, he struggled and his footwork was all over the place, which is something you see uh, actually when he's playing for Clemson as well. He had some really ugly snaps. And then he was like, oh, I think it was on the final day, the third day. I think he said, enough's enough. You know, I need to go out and deliver today. And I wonder if one of the coaches got in his ear and said, come on, John, you know, you're better than this. You, you've not shown particularly well this week. Let's have a good performance from you today. And he came out with a bit between his teeth on uh, Thursday and was a lot better. Now, I think with Stenberg, the difference between Stenberg and Simpson is I think if Stenberg comes in, he can start very quickly. And, you know, it, to give you a complete picture, I mean, I'm, I'm big in Stenberg up here. If he was, if there were no flaws, then he'd be a top 15 pick. The reason why he's not, he had a lot of holding penalties mm. at Kentucky. And that really, really wound the Kentucky fans up. You know, they like him, but they were very frustrated by him as well. That is something that he's going to have to work with and, it may impact his stock. You know, I can see teams being put off by the sheer number of holding penalties that he had, but I'm willing to work on that technical side of things. I think everything else is great. I think with Simpson, it's a, it's a much bigger project because he has to get his footwork right. He has to be able to just plant the anchor, don't move, hold your ground, turn. He doesn't, I don't see him turn many people. Like when he's playing for Clemson, he's very busy and was trying to do too much. Sometimes all you have to do in a guard is engage, get the right hand placement, turn your man, open up a running lane. I mean, it sounds easy. I mean, I couldn't do it, but you know, it's, it's, it's those sort of little subtle things which enable you to succeed quite quickly in your career if you can master them. And I don't see him doing that an awful lot. I do see Logan Stenberg doing that an awful lot. So that's the sort of the difference between the two. But, you know, if the Seahawks, I, I mean, they, they haven't taken a guard early. They've taken offensive tackles very early and then moved them inside just in Britain. Uh, James Carpenter are good examples there. Jermaine Effetti, they drafted as a tackle, then played him in guard in the first year. 
they've generally taken tackles and moved them to guard rather than drafting a pure guard early. Whether they would be willing to do that or not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that Stenberg's going to be there when they pick twice at the end of the second round. And if it's not him, Simpson could be somebody that they come in and develop. Um, but then Phil Haynes showed very well at the end of the year and maybe they will feel a cheap veteran alongside Phil Haynes would be sufficient competition there. But personally, I would like, I, you know, I just, Stenberg's so good that I would go for him. And McFarland's probably going to be there in round three. It's not, he's not the same type of player as Alvin Kamara, but I think he's the kind of player that you could get in round three and in a couple of years' time, we're all wondering how the hell he lasted to round three like Alvin Kamara. Well, when I talk about Simpson, too, I, I mentioned uh, Javon Kinlaw being out with injury. He, he actually did uh, perform a little bit, and he was he was dominating against Simpson. And I guess Simpson was able to, to bounce back after Kinlaw went out uh, with his knee injury and, and mm. won't be in the game. But uh, I, I just wonder, too, you know, how much of that it does have to do with the talent you're going up against. Because I, And I don't even know where Kinlaw's projected. I, I think he's a first-round potential type player on the interior D-line, right? Yeah, Kinlaw's a top 10 talent. You know, he's one of the very best. Um, he's kind of like a Fletcher Cox type player for me um, who can just sort of blow it up from the interior. Great backstory. Um, I, I think he definitely will go in the top 10. But, you know, he, you're right. He he. Uh, it's hard to sort of, when you watch him beating guys, it's very easy to sort of go to the extremes. You know, one, if Kinlaw beats an overmatched offensive lineman, think too highly of Javon Kinlaw for that and then if a guy loses a rep 1v1 in a drill that is set up for the defensive lineman as Jim Nagy told us to succeed is it really as bad as it looks you know for the offensive lineman so you kind of have to balance all that out but Kinlaw just looked amazing and and will go very very early I, I think probably sort of Jacksonville at number nine would be a good projection for him he could even go earlier than that and you know there were one or two other players that got it got hurt and then didn't work out after that you know Marlon Davidson was um, he, he was impressive as well. You know, he's a he's a two ninety five pound guy. Um, he was injured on the first day, turned his ankle. You know, he was really really good on on Tuesday. Showed great quickness at his size. He can play inside out. He picked up uh, this ankle injury after day one to really sort of completely be eliminated from people's conversation. Nobody's talked about him since Tuesday, but he was really really good. The only downside with him is. He looks like a bit of a tweener. He's not a full-time three technique and he probably doesn't have the frame to play outside. He's, he's almost too big and too defensive tackle-esque, if that makes any sense. And he's only got, he's, he's not got 33-inch arms. So he doesn't have the length to play defense. He compared himself to Cam Jordan. Cam Jordan was, you know, he had 35-inch arms and he ran an amazing short shuttle. I mean, it's ridiculous that Cam Jordan lasted. I, had, I mocked Cam Jordan to number three overall in that draft. He ended up going like 24, you know, that was just ridiculous. So he, he isn't Cam Jordan, Marlon Davidson, but he's a name to keep an eye on because I think he, in the one, he was only there one day, but he showed really well in that one day. Well, while we're talking about the interior defensive lineman, how about uh, Neville Gallimore from Oklahoma? He's he's a guy that, yeah, he's not maybe your your pass rushing type player, but maybe, you know, if Jaron Reed goes somewhere else and the Seahawks are, are and he's still on the board when the Seahawks pick at the end of the first round, how about uh, the defensive tackle at Oklahoma? I'm really struggling to get an angle on Neville Gallimore because the, the system in Oklahoma, you know, they've not had a great defense for a while, but the, the system that they use is the, you kind of the, the, the alignments that they set up provides favorable opportunities to attack gaps for their defensive linemen. They're very aggressive. It's why they give up a lot of yards, but they, you know, they, they kind of boom or bust on defense. And even though they have that great setup and the perfect environment for defensive linemen to be successful and be mass production players, Gallimore did not have much production at all in 2019. And when you watch 
his tape. Bear in mind that he was on Bruce Allen's freak list uh, and he was suggesting that he could run a, a 4.840, which would be freakish athleticism for his size. You know, apparently he's incredibly strong, explosive, quick, dynamic. And then you watch the tape and you think, well, where is it? You know, let's see some of this. You know, he's kind of been, you know, tossed up here as like a, a slightly bigger version of Aaron Donald. And then you watch the tape and you think, well, where is it? And then at the senior bowl, it was so boom or bust. So you would see one rep, he would drive a guy back, you know, right into the quarterback's lap, or he would engage with a one-armed punch to the, you know, to the left shoulder, swim move to the outside, knife through the gap, explode to the quarterback and look like a fantastic pass rusher. But then you would also see snaps where he's just stone dead, you know, on, on contact and mm. just driven out of the play. And it was like, wow, you know, so my feeling having seen him in Mobile is... I feel quite strongly about this now, is that I think at the next level, he will be a player who is very capable of collecting, shall we say, six to eight sacks a season consistently and people having a positive impression about him because he collects six to eight sacks a season. But I think that there's a danger that to go along with those six to eight sacks, he will also be a liability 70% of the time. You know, as a, as a that he will he will struggle in the run game, that he will he will not be able to do the basics well enough down to down to to sort of really make him a top player. He will just sort of have those big flashy splash plays six to eight times, as I mentioned there, probably get a few pressures, a few TFLs as well, but then he might get blown off the ball and give up a huge run. So I think you probably, whoever takes him is probably going to have to live with that. Well, Rob, I, I'm done talking about the Oklahoma defense because like you said, it just brings me back to the fact that uh, they they like to play part-time uh, there in college anyway uh, it feels like you know 30 percent of the time you get uh, defense out of Oklahoma but I you know you're bringing up bad memories from this past season for me so let's move on over to the <laughs> offensive line uh, one of the guys that has kind of stood out to me just in terms of measurements you got Alex Taylor from South Carolina State the tackle from there he's six eight has 36 inch arms uh, this is a big dude very big very long or should I say yeah. I thought very thin. You know, I thought his legs looked quite skinny. Well, and, yeah. You know, I'm six four. I know what that's like. You know, if if, you, if you're tall, it's it's hard to walk. If you know, if you've got big legs when you're like six five, six six, then uh, you, you, <laughs> people are going to notice you. Let's say you know you're going to be a big dude. So you know, if he's six eight, it's going to be pretty hard for him to slap some muscle and some weight on those legs. Um, I thought he did okay. You know, I saw some some snaps where you, you know there was a bit of potential there. You know, there's something to work with. I, you know, I think there was a few offensive linemen where. You know, they're very raw, but if you could get them on the last day, you could maybe develop them. You know, Matt Peart was another one at UConn. His arms are too wide, you know, gets him to the outside shoulder. He's going to give up so many holding penalties doing that. Mm. Uh, but he looks the part and there's some athleticism there. So you think, yeah, you know, if you get him on the last day, he's somebody you could maybe work and develop. And if not, well, what if you lost? You know, you took a chance on an offensive lineman later on. I thought Ben Barge, small school guy, held his own for, you know, and again, you know, he's probably not a guy that, is going to end up starting in the NFL, but you know, as a cheap backup, as somebody you can develop to see if they can eventually become a starter, maybe a right tackle rather than left tackle, is that somebody worth looking at? So I think you know, with Taylor and with Peart and with Barch, um, you know, I think there's some some guys there with upside, and you've also got guys who are pretty average who might be able to do you a job if that makes sense. You know, rather than have upside like Colt McKivitz at, at West Virginia had some some good moments this week and some bad moments too. He's, he's his ceiling is a lot lower maybe than some of those guys. But the floor is probably a little bit higher as well. So, you know, it depends what kind of 
offensive tackle you're looking for if you're going to take one sort of, I would say, early day three. How about Josh Jones? Josh Jones. So all week we've heard from Twitter and, uh, you know, some some sort of well-known pundits that Josh Jones is this, that and the other. It, you would almost think that, you know, Walter Jones had, had, had come back to, to play uh, with the way that he's played. And then you actually watch days one and two at the Senior Bowl and I, I just thought, what on earth are these people seeing? You know, I, I just did not see anything really at all to warrant this first round talk. Granted, on day three, he was the, he's probably the only person who's been able to slow down Jason Strobridge. And he did it in such emphatic fashion that he embarrassed Strobridge, as I mentioned, by you know, tossing him to the turf and looking really good in the process. So you say, okay, fair enough. You know, one of the points of, the, of Mobile is that you show developments and you progress through the week. It's not about the guys that turn up day one and, and just shine all the way through. Mm-hmm. If an offensive lineman is... They've not played football for a month. If he's a bit sluggish on day one, but you see an improvement on day two and then a real improvement on day three, that's fine. That can be even more of a positive than just looking good all week. So you give Jones credit for that. Yeah, they then moved him inside to guard. And you you say, I say moving him inside to guard. These are 1v1 drills. There's nobody playing either side of them. So they shifted him. The angle was slightly different. And then he had a rep against Neville Gallimore. And Gallimore just completely destroyed him. You know, just drove him straight back into the quarterback. So you're thinking, okay, well, look, what what are you actually getting here? You know, you're getting a guy who apparently has got some athletic upside. So let's see how he does at the combine. You know, has, has had some some good moments on day three, but has also had quite a lot of bad moments too. So is he going to be able to start early? Is he somebody who, you know, is he, is he a right tackle? Is he a left tackle? You know, he's his good steps against Strobridge were at right tackle. If they're trying him inside a guard, does that mean they see him as more of a Titus Howard type who can kick inside a guard rather than a tackle? And if that's the case, you know, I'd, I'd say, why are you drafting him ahead of Logan Stenberg, who you know can play guard? Is it purely because of the upside nature of this? And if that's the case and you're talking about upside at guard, aren't you better off just getting the guy that smashes people in the face and creates huge running lanes for your running backs? So, I know. I mean, I, I'm personally not on the hype train with Josh Jones, but a lot of other people are. And if he tests well at the Combine, there's every chance he'll go early and I'll be wrong and they'll be right. But, um, you know, not a personal favorite, I would say. So what's your overall opinion of this tackle class this year? Because I feel like this is probably the position that Seahawks fans are looking at and saying, you know, you you got uh, Brown uh, at left tackle that's, you know, he's not getting any younger, you know, do you, and maybe can you, can you draft somebody on the right side if, if Fant decides that, uh, you know, he's testing free agency too, apparently. Uh, well, I guess we'll see once free agency rolls around, but you know, if, if George Fant can't fill behind at right tackle and uh, Dwayne Brown, you know, potentially retiring in a couple of years, is this the draft to go out and, and try and find some potential replacements at either of the tackle spots? I'd certainly would make some logic here. You know, as long as they can uh, address the the big, huge, glaring need of defensive line, you know, in, in free agency, if they can do that, yeah, then, yeah, you know, a tackle early in this draft would make some sense. Especially, I mean, it's, if, if Fetty and Fant both leave, it becomes a, a serious need. You know, it becomes a really serious need um, because they need to have somebody who can, you know, can play right tackle. And, you know, I actually look at this draft class there are guys of real interest. I mean, it's it's a decent offensive tackle draft. You know, there's there's been some talk this week that Andrew Thomas is not going to go as early as people think. 
which just made me laugh um, because for me, he's just a fantastic left tackle talent. And if if he really did fall into the 20s, I would hope that the Seahawks would do a Jaron Reed style trade up uh, with a with a shot of John Schneider kind of laughing to himself like he did when they traded up for Jaron Reed, mm-hmm. you know, almost in disbelief that he was still available for them uh, because Andrew Thomas for me is a you know franchise left tackle. So if you could get somebody like that, amazing but then you you know you've got a few others i just wonder if there are so many teams that need offensive linemen that you see every year the good offensive linemen go very very early so it wouldn't be surprised if andrew thomas you know mckay beckton's a player is getting a lot of attention he seems to be moving i mean if he tests well at the combine could easily go very very early jedrick wills a lot of people like him at alabama uh you've got tristan Wirfs, who ended up declaring from iowa you talked about josh jones there's austin jackson from usc as well uh lucas niang from tcu and, and other guys as well that I've I've probably forgotten about. I mean, there's there's quite a lot of names there. The, the one that I really like is Isaiah Wilson. You know, he's a huge guy, 6'7", hardly any bad weight on him, even though he's about 330 pounds. I just thought he was really, really good, really underrated, you know, kind of a top 20 talent for me. If he was there at the end of the first round, you know, I've talked a lot about Logan Stenberg and Anthony McFarland tonight. I'd, I'd, I'd equally, you know, let's, let's throw him on the list. You know, Isaiah Wilson should be up there as well, somebody mm. you would really, really champion for. I think he's exactly the type of player that the Seahawks like. Big upside, big size, great length, bit of a beast in the running game. Um, he's another player that could be of real interest to them. So, you know, I, I think there is an opportunity. You know, I quite like the going the veteran route with offensive line. I think it, it pays to have some older heads there, some some grizzled veterans on the offensive line, especially when you, you play the way that the Seahawks do. But I think it, this would be a good draft to set the stall for the future as well. So like you say, Dwayne Brown's not going to be here forever. There's probably another, at least another good two years out of him, I would say, but because he doesn't seem to be indicating he's going to quit anytime soon. Uh, but if you can get an offensive tackle who could potentially replace him in the future, then great. If you can get a guard like a Stenberg type um, to, to replace Mikey Putty, then great. And I think that would be something worth considering. I, I do think, though, that they probably will re-sign George Fant just as, if nothing else, as a hedge. Yeah. So that they can play the Effetti situation by ear. They like Fant. He can play a number of roles for them. He could start at right tackle. And I, I actually think that they, they like Fant enough to maybe be the left tackle one day and might actually see an opportunity where if they could sign him to a two or three year deal, they have some real insurance against Dwayne Brown. And I think that Fant could be the guy that they actually see as a potential future at left tackle. So we'll have to see what happens there. Well, and it would not be unusual for the Seahawks to go out and pay a guy who may be above what you might consider the market rate, too. Because yeah, I look back to that when the Seahawks signed Camp Chancellor in the offseason, and many of us were looking at that like, oh, my gosh, that just seems like too much. Or Tyler Lockett when they re-signed him and, and we're going, yeah, is, is Tyler Lockett really worth that kind of contract? Well, you know, I look at a guy like George Fant in that similar way that they're going to know and have it projected of where he's going to play. They've spent so much time with the guy that they know that the kind of potential that they have in, in any type of player that maybe we haven't quite seen yet. Yeah. And, and look, George Fant said, I think when he left um, the locker room last week, that he wants to, he wants an opportunity to start. And yeah. people saw that as, oh, well, that's George Fant out the door. But it actually will require another team to come forward and say, hey, George, based on all those tight end snaps you had last year, we <laughs> want you to start at right tackle or left right. tackle. You know, the team that knows George Fant the best is Seattle. They are the, you know, he's, he is somebody, if they believe that he is a potential left tackle of the future, let's just imagine this scenario. Free agency opens, look, by the combine, everybody knows what their interest is anyway. So by the combine, 
they will be able to say to George Van, okay, you know what is out there now. We think you could be the left tackle of our future. So we are willing to give you, let's say, $8 million a year, you know, $6 million a year over two or three years for you to come here and be our right tackle for now with the prospect of becoming our left tackle in the future. And hey, do you know what? In two or three years' time, if it works out and you are our left tackle, then you've, you'll, you'll still be below 30. You will have an opportunity to sign a big extension um, and make the money to set you up for the rest of your life. But the contract we're offering you now is on a it will set you up for the rest of your life anyway. You know, it's it's a really decent deal. And there may be sort of a compromise there where he gets a little bit more than he may have got somewhere else. He maybe maybe starts, maybe doesn't start, but it's just something that sort of ties him to the team without breaking the bank. So, you know, I've just thrown out some numbers there. You know, people might go, oh God, six to eight million for George Fan. What do you, what do you hell? But if he ends up being your starting right tackle for the next couple, two or three years, right. that's actually a decent amount of money. And if he ends up being your left tackle at any point because Dwayne Brown gets injured or he, he retires after the 2020 season, it's even better. It's even cheaper. So uh, I think this, you could even see a situation where Jadavian Clowney is priority number one, and it might not be Jaron Reed who's priority number two. It might be George Fan. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I bring it up because that wouldn't shock me. And I think if, you told a lot of Seahawks fans that $8 million number for George Fant, they would go, oh my gosh. But, you know, down the road, you might look at that and go, hey, this is where the Seahawks, they they got some sort of a deal. So uh, just something to watch going forward into free agency. Rob, I really want to thank you for coming on and helping break down some of these guys senior bowl week. I know it was tough because, you know, I share you and I shared some of the frustrations uh, with the the coverage on TV in particular. I was trying to listen to it on the uh, the NFL Sirius XM channel and you know they would spend you know 3 or 4 minutes actually breaking down what they were seeing on the field and then you know for the rest of the hour it seemed like they were doing interviews well listen my mess I, I doubt anybody from the NFL network is or any of the power bros the NFL network are going to listen to this but I, if you are here's the message fans enjoy watching the senior bowl fans enjoy watching the combine you know what this is your product has become so huge that there are enough nerds like me out there who want to watch these drills live. They want to watch people running short shuttles and jumping vertical jumps and running 40-yard dashes and doing drills at the combine just you know, in shorts and a t-shirt catching footballs. You know what? You have created such a fantastic, entertaining product that we just can't get enough, especially when you have this weird long months, month after month after month with no football. You have to wait till September Give me a week of senior ball. Give me a weekend of combine and I'll soak it up and I'll write about it. And you've got a million fans on Twitter talking about it. You've got blogs being written, forums, Reddit posts about, about what is going on. You know, the, the draft is such a huge thing. I guarantee you that that has to be more popular than a rerun of the 1994 game between San Francisco and Kansas City just because they happen to be playing in the Super Bowl. And I guarantee that if you put an hour-long roundup of the senior bowl as your only offering during the week that nobody wants to see seven or eight minutes of Bucky Brooks receiving a cake. So that is, you know, just show some drills. Let's have some analysis. It'd be nice if the analysis was a little bit more than, Hey, nice rep, which is what you tend to get from some of the guys on there. Uh, you know, come back Mike Mayock. And, uh, you know, it's just do more, please. You know, we, we can't get enough of this. So, you know, provide the fans with what they want. Let's just do this right next year, Rob. You and I, we go to Mobile and, and we and we do the coverage on the field from from the stadium. You know, I've never been more determined uh, to visit uh, Mobile and, and go to Alabama next year. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. Let's make a pact. 
it's going it's going to provide the coverage that the fans deserve next year it's now documented on the podcast so rob uh thanks once again follow him at rob staten on twitter seahawksdraftblog.com for the coverage there of course we will have coverage at fieldgoals.com as well with alistair corp so check that out and we will be back next week probably doing a wrap-up of the senior bowl and uh stay tuned sbnation.com slash nfl podcast to subscribe we'll talk to you then go hawks